Well, hello, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we have an archive show. This is a show, a Boomer Boulevard show, that was first broadcast on the 20th of May in 2019. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Let's go. No, it was a great idea, Chester. Chester, hi everybody, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the podcast where we play old-time radio shows we remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. But everybody loves these old shows. Chester last week suggested that why don't we do an all-request show. So that's what we're doing tonight. So we have four shows we're going to play. Each of them has been requested by members of our audience, people like yourselves that listen every week. And we're just delighted to uh, be able to share some of these shows that you have asked for. So make yourselves comfortable, get situated very snugly in that chair, because we're gonna be back and get started in just a minute. request tonight comes from a listener in St. George, Utah. Paul Johnson writes, Dear Bob, I remember watching the lineup on TV with my parents, much the way you remember watching it with yours. I never knew this show started on radio. Thanks for playing this moody, somewhat dark, but highly entertaining show. I just love it. I think it's probably the most realistic show of its type. Do you know if the TV show used the same scripts as the radio show? I vaguely remember an episode that involved a policewoman going undercover in an old-fashioned dance hall. I have no idea what the title was, but this episode stands out in my mind. Of course, I was a little kid at the time. Is there any chance this story was also on the radio? Love your show, signed Paul Johnson, St. George, Utah. 
Well, you know, I looked into this, Paul, and first of all, thank you for the comments. I agree with you about the lineup. It does bring back memories of watching it on television. We've talked about this in the past. The TV show was based in San Francisco. The uh, radio show was based in a uh, nondescript big city. That's really all we know about it. I went back and looked at some of the TV episodes. The TV show was on for six years, and back then, each each year had 35 episodes. As near as I can tell, the episode titles on TV were not the same titles as the radio episodes. However, when you said that about this plot, I know that we have a very similar storyline in one of the episodes that, uh, that I have in my radio files. So what we're going to do now is we're going to see if this bears any resemblance to what Paul remembers. This one comes from uh, the 22nd of February in 1951. This is the lineup. And the name of this episode is The Silver Swan Case. Here it comes. Ladies and gentlemen, we take you now behind the scenes of a police headquarters in a great American city, where under the cold, glaring lights will pass before us the innocent, the vagrant, the thief, the murderer. This is The Lineup. Thing you catch him, uh, Lieutenant? Maybe you got him now. Maybe, but we'll need your help, Mr. Reduzzi. You got my help, all of my help. I've been a night watchman 20 years. Now I can help the police, <laughs> making me proud. Sure, sure. Just sit here. Thank you. you. You know, I thought it was a bundle he was carrying, a big bundle. That's a joke, you no, know, Lieutenant? Yeah. A joke, man, it's not funny. This bundle the man carried down the fire escape. She was a dead girl. Maybe I should run after him. You called the police. That was the right thing. Down the fire escape. Then he put her on the pavement and walk away. Just like that. The girl, she was a strangler. Huh, Lieutenant? That's right. Strangler. If I run after him, maybe I'll catch him. You might have, Mr. May Reducer. I have your attention, please? Me, Reducci. A man who almost called him murder. The audience room. May I have your attention, please? Thank you. My name is Greb, Sergeant Matt Greb. I'll explain the lineup to you. Each of the suspects you will see will be numbered. I'll call off a number, their name, and charge. If you have any questions or identifications, please remember the number assigned to the prisoner as I call his name. At the end of each line, when I ask for questions or identifications, call out the number. If you're sure or not too sure of the suspect, have him held. The officers who took your name will assist you. They're seated among you. Please be prompt with your questions or identifications. Uh, this man, the, the killer, when do they bring him out? The In a minute, Mr. Richards. And yes. back into their jail clothes. It makes it quite difficult to bring them back after they leave here. The questions I ask these suspects are merely to get a natural tone of voice. So do not pay too much attention to their answers as they often lie. Bring on the line. All right, boys, all right, this way, pick it up, pick it up. The first man walk to the end of the stage, take your place, the others follow. That's far enough, now turn and face front. You're the second man, don't look up at the ceiling, look out at the people so they can see you. That's right. 
All right, number one, Finney Russell, assault. Where do you live, Finney? Same place, down by the fish market. You hit a man this morning, knocked him up. That's right. Why did you hit him, Finney? Oh, he said a bad thing about me. Is that all? Oh, he tried to sell me a rotten fish. What did you hit him with? Oh, everything. What's everything? A rubber boot and a bucket, I think. Number two, Harold Dodge, fifth. Where are you from, Harold? The East. Where in the East? The only place in the East, Boston. Don't tell me, Harold. Tell the people out there. Boston. Ever been arrested before? A few times. How often? Five, ten, a hundred? Seven. Speak louder. How many times were you arrested? Seven. Where were you arrested this time? In a phone booth. I was calling my girl. The arresting officer said you were breaking open the coin box. I was trying to get my nickel back. The call was hardly worth it. Number three, Warren Fuller, vagrancy. Where do you live, Warren? Slop house. Which slop house? They don't play no favorites. Sun goes down, it's always a flop house. What kind of work do you do, Warren? Work. All right. What do you do all day? All that. Sit in the park, take a walk up Broadway. Ever think about getting a job? I've thought about it. Have you tried? Sure, I tried. When did you try, Warren? 1933. Didn't work out. Number four, Charlie Bond. Open charge. Where do you live, Charlie? I'm not answering any questions. What's that? What's that? I, I didn't hear you. I said I'm not answering any questions. Okay, make it tough for yourself. I don't feel good. I'm sick. You'll feel worse if you don't answer the questions. Where do you live? Rainbow Apartments. At the apartment house across the street from the realty building? How do I know? How do I? I don't know. You ever been arrested before, Charlie? No, no. Mr. Reducing? What do you do for a living? I, I don't know. Come on, speak I, up. I just can't say. You're not sure? But you see, Lieutenant, Any questions or identifications? I see. Sergeant Graham. Yes, Lieutenant. Number four. Have him walk back and forth across the stage. Yes, sir. That's you, Charlie. Walk. Over to the end of the stage and back. I don't feel like walking. Walk! Okay. Now, Mr. Reducey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the man? What? I think so, maybe. Sergeant? Yes? Hold number four for interrogation. Lieutenant, you'll get a doctor. Huh? After we talk, Charlie. After you tell me about last night. You don't want to get a police doctor. Let me phone. I'll get my own doctor. Last night, where were you? All night. You want to know about all night? Uh-huh. Well, I was in my apartment all night. The day before, I was sick. The night watchman in the realty building said he saw you carry the body of a girl down the fire escape. You left the body on the pavement and walked away. My kidneys must, must be my kidneys the way it hurts. The watchman said? Well, he's a liar wasn't me. Who was it? How do I know? You get paid to find out such things. Those scratches on your face, Charlie. How did you get them? I don't. I don't know. Maybe I cut myself, shaving. They're long scratches. The kind of girl's fingernails would make. Ben. Yeah, Matt, come on in. The morgue called. They got a girl down there who thinks she can identify the body. Uh-huh. Well, take Charlie back to his cell. I'll meet you down at the morgue. <laughs> Thank you.
Over here, Ben. This is Laura Phillips. She works in the dance hall all over near 15th Street. Lieutenant, I hope you won't think... I, I mean, this is the first time now, I... we understand, Miss Phillips. You think it might be someone you know. My roommate. I know, it's silly, but... Well, Edna left the dance hall in such a hurry last night, and she didn't come home. Sure, I... sure, I understand, Miss Phillips. All right, ma'am. Edna... You, you must think I'm awful, Mr. Guthrie, getting upset like that, but when I saw Edna... Now that's all right, Miss Phillips. Feel well enough to answer a few questions? Could I have a glass of water, please? Matt, get her a glass of water. Yes, yeah, sure, sure. Your roommate, uh, what was her full name, Edna One? Edna Hawley. We've been rooming together about two years. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. And, uh, we both worked at the Silver Swan Dance Hall. I see. You know anybody who would want to kill her? Oh, no. Edna was... Well, she was a little wild, but she was all right. Everybody liked her. Uh, what about last night at the dance hall? Did she have an argument? Edna never had arguments, Mr. Guthrie. She she was sweet. Sweetest person I've ever known. Miss Phillips, does the name Charlie Bond mean anything to you? Charlie Bond? No. Matt, hand me those mug shots of Charlie, left hand draw. Here you are, Ben. Nice. Ever see this man before, Miss Phillips? Maybe. He looks familiar. Try the profile. Here. He looks so familiar, I think. Uh, take your time. Yes, I... I've seen him, Mr. Guthrie. I'm sure I've seen him at the dance hall. Last night? No, it, it must have been about a month ago, maybe two. He came in every night for about a week. Have you seen him since then? Not once. Did this man kill Edna? That's something we have to find out. Poor Edna, she was so sweet. Did she have any relatives here in town or somewhere else? No, I don't think so. Her mother and father are dead. She had a brother, but he was killed in the war. Oh, I just remembered. Holly was Edna's married name. She only talked about her husband once a long time ago. That's why I almost forgot it. She never saw him? Well, he lives in town, but they were separated. Hmm. Any idea of his first name? Albert or Alfred or something like that. I believe she said he was some kind of an artist, a painter, I think. I'm not sure. Well, all right, Miss Phillips. Thanks for your help. That's all? You don't want to ask uh, me? Not now. I'll have somebody drive you home. Matt. Yeah, Ben? Set up a tracer on Edna Hawley's husband. It's open. You're Alfred Hawley? Who are you? Police. Lieutenant Guthrie. 
Sit down. Oh, just dump those canvases on the floor. <sighs> I want to ask you some questions. About what? You were married to Edna Hawley? I still am. When did you last see your wife? Um, three, four years ago. I forget. I forget because I don't want to remember. You hear about support money? No. Well, that's good because I don't have support money for her or me. Edna in trouble? She's dead. Would you hand me that brush, the big one? Thanks. I said your wife is dead. Murdered. She probably deserved it. It doesn't bother you? Makes me happy. She hated me and I hated her. We let it go at that. Did you hate her enough to kill her? More than enough. Where were you last night? Uh, tell me, Lieutenant. How was Edna killed? Strangled. In the Rainbow Apartments. Body was carried down the fire escape, left on the sidewalk. You didn't answer my question about where you were last night. No, no, I didn't. Well? <laughs> what's so funny? <laughs> you think I killed Edna? <laughs> carried her body down a fire escape? Maybe. Can you convince me you didn't? <laughs> Come on, Lieutenant. Want me to show you to the door? We're not through talking. Yes, we are. You'd better come along to headquarters. Certainly. Anytime. Well, come on. Sure. Would you mind handing me those crutches, Lieutenant? I can't walk a step without them. Oh, man. Oh, I've been waiting for you, Ben. How'd you make out with Edna Hawley's husband? <sighs> He's a cripple. Couldn't possibly have carried it down the fire escape. What'd you get? Charlie Bond. He said he wasn't out of his apartment all last night. Well, he's lying, Ben. The man who runs a newspaper stand three blocks from the apartment house said Charlie bought a paper from him last night around 11. Is he sure? He's sure. Charlie's a regular customer. I'll go get Charlie. Could you? Lieutenant, do me a favor, will you? What? Stop making that chair squeak. It's on my nerve. You'll get used to it, Charlie. I feel sick, sicker than I did this morning. Makes my nerves jumpy. Charlie, we found out who the dead girl was. You did? Edna Hawley. She worked in a dance hall called the Silver Swan. Congratulations, Lieutenant. Ever been in the Silver Swan, Charlie? The Lieutenant asked you a question, Charlie. Were you ever at the Silver Swan? Maybe, maybe. I'm a sick man. I can't sleep nights. I go lots of... Why did you kill him? Kill who? Edna Hawley. You strangled her. Why? I don't know what you're talking Last about. Last night you brought Edna to your apartment and then you killed her. Why, Charlie? You're crazy. I wasn't out of my apartment. We know you were out last night. How do you know? You don't know. You bought a newspaper. Eleven o'clock. Did you forget, Charlie? Yeah, I forgot. All right. So I went out for a paper. 
Why are you looking at me like that? Nothing, Charlie. Nothing at all. Not for a paper. It was only a couple of minutes. You can't prove anything from that. When did you meet Edna? After you bought the paper? I didn't meet this Edna. I don't even know. When are you, when are you going to let me go? There's no hurry. You have to let me go soon, Lieutenant, because you haven't got a thing on me. Give them to Asher, man. Where are you taking me? Back to yourself. Come on, Charlie. You better let me go soon. You better see my doctor. I can't be killed. Take him upstairs again, Bill. You uh, think the same way I do, don't you, Ben? How's that? Charlie's our man. He killed Edna Hawley. I think so, but I can't prove it. We might make him crack. I doubt it, though. We'll try. It won't be easy. We need a witness, Ben. Somebody who saw Charlie Bond and Edna Hawley together last night. All right. We'll make our own witness. Huh? Policewoman. We'll find a policewoman who looks like a dance hall hostess. Here we are, Nora. Is Charlie Bond already in the visitor's room? No, he'll be brought in. You understand what you're supposed to do now? Uh, yes, sir. Just remember what I told you. We'll be listening in the next room. Good luck, Nora. Thanks, Lieutenant. All set up, man? All set up and working. Grab a chair, Ben. All right. Uh, turn it up a little, huh? Right. You think Charlie will go for her story? It's a chance. I don't know, Ben. Nora being new and... Matt. Yeah. That must be him now. They told me I had a visitor. Hello, Charlie. Who are you? I've got something to tell you. I don't know you. I work at the Silver Swan Dance Hall. What's that got to do with me? I know you, Charlie. I've got something to tell you. Something about... Edna Hawley. I don't know anything about her. I'm going back to myself. Okay, if you don't want to hear. Yeah, what? What about Edna Hawley? I'll make it short. I saw you meet her last night. You're crazy. Okay, I'm crazy. But I saw you. You're so smart. Why don't you tell the cops? What do you want? Money. I don't know what you're talking about. Money to keep quiet. Five hundred dollars. You can't blackmail me. I never saw this Edna Hawley. All right. We'll leave it like that. You can't that. prove I met her. Because I didn't. I said we'd leave it like that. The cops will let you go before long. Yeah, they'll have to let me go. You know where I work, Charlie. See you soon? You won't see me. I'll wait a week. Wait a month. I don't care. A week. That's how long I'll wait. One week. Time's up, Charlie. So long, Charlie. Like I said, see you soon. Turn it off, man. Well, she did a good job. Yeah. I think he'll bite hard. Maybe. We'll let him think it over a while. When do we uh, release him? Tonight? First thing in the morning. Tonight we've got work to do. Work? Well, we have to rent a room for Nora near the Silver Swan. And you know how hard it is to rent rooms these days.
morning, Ben. Morning, Matt. Did you release Charlie? Yeah, just signed him out. Very unfriendly person, Charlie. Who's tailing him? Pearson and Doherty. Well, what about tonight? I called the manager of the Silver Swan. He's briefing Nora now. How many men did you get us? Nine, counting Pearson and Doherty. Tell me how you want them staked out. Well, six in the dance hall, one on the dictaphone in the room next to Nora's. Check. Now, what about us? We'll be outside the Silver Swan. Outside? Uh Uh-huh. What about it? Well, it's freezing outside, Ben. Don't we ever get an inside job? What time has it been? Uh, uh, one... 1.55. Oh, I wish they'd closed these dance halls earlier. That wind's going right through me. Yeah, me too. Doesn't look like Charlie's going to show. Matt. Hmm? Crossing the street. Where? Where? End of the block. Yeah, I see him now. Keep back in the shadow. No, never mind. He's going the other way. Kind of look like him. Uh-huh. But I don't see Doherty. I guess we were wrong. I wonder when he'll show. He's got a week to make up his mind. Well, I hope the weather gets warmer. It feels like snow. Oh, snow. What's wrong with snow? Pretty. Uh, Music stop. Nora should be out in a minute. I could use some coffee. Yeah, coffee sounds good. I haven't been this cold since I was pounding a beat. Got used to it. We'll be here tomorrow night, too. Yeah. Looks like you're right. Uh oh. There's Nora Ben coming out the side door. Yeah, we'll give her a few seconds stop before we follow. That's not far to my place, Ben. We'll tail Nora home and then go have coffee, huh? Ben. Oh, Dreyer? Oh, evening, Lieutenant. Boy, do you two look cold. Well, maybe it's because we are. <laughs> Anything to report? I can hear Nora now. She just came in. Yeah, we followed her. Switch on the two-way, will you, Dreyer? Mm-hmm. Everything all right, Nora? Yes, sir. But no Charlie Vaughn. And we'll try again tomorrow night. All right, Lieutenant. Stay in your room during the day. Be in the dance hall at the usual time. Gee, I hope he shows up soon. My feet are starting to hurt. Two o'clock, huh, Ben? Uh-huh. Well, looks like another dry run. I wonder why he doesn't show. Doherty says he sticks pretty close to his apartment. 
It's not so cold tonight. I think it's going to snow. You said that the first night. I still think so. Ben, maybe we ought to try something else. Like what? Pick Charlie up again. Keep him locked up until he cracks. You know that wouldn't work, man. Yeah, yeah. I guess not. Give it time. We got four more nights. Yeah. Coming over for coffee afterwards? We ought to go to my place tonight. Well, mine's close. There. There's Nora. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, man. Hmm? Not yet. What's, what's the matter? That alley there. Where the street lights burned out. I don't see anything. He ducked behind the building. Uh, Charlie? Well, I, I don't know. It's there. Yeah. It's Charlie. What do you know? He's letting Nora walk right by. I thought he would. In her room, huh? If we're lucky. But wait till he starts to follow. Ben. All right, man. Let's go. Charlie's not following her in, Ben. Just standing on the other side of the street, watching. Yeah, he's waiting. Waiting for what? To find out which room's Nora's. He should know now. She just turned on the light. We go up now, Ben? Yeah, the back way. Come on. We've been up here a long time, Ben. Maybe he won't come up. He'll come. Well, Nora must... Shh. Ben. Yeah. Turn it up, Dryer. Well, you took your time getting here. Yeah, I had to think about it. I thought maybe you wouldn't come. You said I had a week. I'm here now. Did you bring the money, Charlie? Money? For what? For me. So I'll keep quiet. I haven't got any money. Don't stall, Charlie. I want $500. Suppose I don't pay. I'll go to the cops. Tell them I saw you with Edna Hawley. I've got a better idea. Better than money. Yeah, this. Charlie. Let's go. Well, I'll be... What? (laughs) Betty, look at Charlie. He sounds like a fish. He, he, He was going to... Nora, what's the matter? He was... He was going to kill me. Nora! Man! How about that? She slugs a killer, then passes out. What is it with women, Ben? Lineup, where before you pass the innocent, the vagrant, the thief, the murderer. Listen again next week when we again bring you the lineup. May I have your attention, please? You people out there on the other side of the wire in the audience room, may I have your attention, please? Thank you. 
My name is Greb, Sergeant Matt Greb. I'll explain the lineup to you. Each of the suspects you will see will be numbered. I'll call off a number, their name and charge. If you have any questions or identifications, please remember the number assigned to the prisoner as I call his name. At the end of each line, when I ask for questions or identification, call out the number. The lineup, starring Bill Johnstone as Lieutenant Ben Guthrie and Wally Mayer as Sergeant Matt Greb, was written by Charles E. Israel with music by Eddie Dunstetter. Featured in tonight's cast were Jay Novello, Junius Matthews, Sidney Miller, Pat McGeehan, John McIntyre, Mary Jane Croft, and Sammy Hill. The lineup is produced and directed by Jaime Del Valle. <laughs> Beginning next Tuesday, the lineup will be heard at the same time on most of these stations on Tuesday evenings. The lineup joins Mystery Theater, Mr. and Mrs. North, Luigi and Ralph Edwards as a Tuesday feature on CBS. Be listening for the lineup at the same time on Tuesdays, beginning next Tuesday, February 27th. Now stay tuned for a special program in observance of Brotherhood Week, which follows on many of these same CBS stations. Dan Coverly speaking. This is CBS, where Edward R. Murrow and Hear It Now come to you Friday evenings. The Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, Paul, there you go. That's the one I have that sounds like the story you're talking about. Now, if that story was ever on TV, it wouldn't surprise me. That was very commonly done when shows made the transition from radio to television. On the other hand, maybe at some point you heard the, that radio episode before, or maybe it's not the same show at all. But anyway, I thank you for your your kind letter and that uh, you're a faithful listener, and I'm glad you love the lineup. I do, too. I just think it's a great show. And we have several more episodes we can play in the months ahead. I received a nice note from Jeannie in Mountain Home, Arkansas, and she loves the Whistler. So Jeannie, here's one for you. This one is from January the 6th, 1947. This is an episode of The Whistler starring Lorene Tuttle and William Johnstone, and it's entitled Dear Roger. Here it comes. The Whistler. the whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales, hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now the whistler's strange story, Dear Roger. 
It was a strange meal they ate together that evening, full of long, awkward silences, both of them making useless attempts at light conversation, trying to fill in the gaps. Anne Martin looked across at her husband. She tried to smile to make this dinner like all the others. She knew that the dread in the back of her mind had made the atmosphere tense, that Phil had sensed it somehow. At 20 minutes of seven, he put down his fork. Oh, it's no use, darling. I, I guess I'm just not hungry tonight. How about some coffee? No. Uh, Phil? Yes? Is something bothering you, darling? What makes you ask that? Well, I don't know, dear. You seem a little strange tonight, and I just thought that... What did you think? Well, I, uh, I thought you might be worried or something. I wonder what it is. What, Phil? I wonder what it is that gives a woman the power to pull something out of the air like that. I thought I could put it past you. I guess I should have known better. Please tell me. I am worried, Anne. I'm terribly worried. What's wrong? I didn't want to tell you until it was all over. It'll probably be in the papers in a few days, though. Darling, the next ten days are going to be the most important days in our lives. But I don't understand. Number one, it looks very much like I'm going to resign as district attorney. Resign? Yes. The governor's about decided he has a job for me. In Washington. Why, Phil, you mean you... Yes, United States Senator, dear. Since Senator White passed away, it's up to the governor to appoint a man to fill out White's term. Well, that's wonderful, darling. I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's off the record at the moment, of course. It'll be the beginning for us, Anne. Or, uh, maybe not. What do you mean, maybe not? Well, there are people who don't want to see me get that appointment, Anne. Why? A lot of reasons. All of them political. Is that why you're worried, Phil? And they've come to me several times now. They've tried to bribe me, buy me off, threaten me. They'll go to any lengths to ruin me unless I refuse to accept that appointment. You see, it's their necks or mine, and they know it. They're powerful, and got influence. If they could find one grain of scandal in my past, or yours for that matter, they... What's the matter, Anne? Nothing, Phil, no. Nothing. I, uh... I told them to go ahead, Anne. I told them to do their darndest. We have nothing to hide, have we? No, Phil. We have nothing to hide. And that's the second time you lied to him, isn't it, Anne? Nothing to hide. Nothing except an appointment at 8 o'clock you told him was at the dressmaker's. It makes sense now, doesn't it, Anne? The phone call from Roger Henderson this afternoon. His insistence that you come to his apartment tonight on the other side of town at 8 to uh, talk over old times. So now you know why. And as you ring the bell of his apartment, you know this appointment is going to decide everything one way or the other. Well, my dear Mrs. Martin, how nice of you to be on time. Won't you come in? Thank you, Roger. You must excuse my apartment. Really a nice place, of course. Good location, excellent view of the river. Lacking only the woman's touch. Please sit down. Cigarette? I'd rather not, thanks. Oh, you... You don't smoke. 
You've included that with your other reforms, of course. Please get to the point, Roger. Why did you want me to come here? Don't be impatient, my dear. After all, it's been so long since I've had the pleasure of your company. Let me see, it's uh, nine years now? Yes, nine years next month. In uh, Switzerland, wasn't it? St. Moritz. Heavy snowfall that year. You wanted me to teach you to ski. I didn't come here to reminisce. And you're married now. Fine husband. Politically ambitious, too. Tell me, Anne, does he love you as much as I did? You're being awfully cruel, Roger. That's hardly the thing for you to say. You see, Anne, for nine years now I've thought of you. Remembered you as the cruelest woman I ever met in my life. I tried to explain it to you, Roger. You wouldn't listen. I tried to tell you I couldn't marry you. I didn't love you, that's all. It wouldn't have been fair to either of us, don't you see? It was still cruel. But it was just as hard for me. I know how you felt, but it was the only way. You did love me, Anne. You told me. I was young. I didn't know what I was doing. That's not what you said in your letters. The letters? You kept them. Of course I kept them. That's why you called me here, isn't it? Roger, where are those letters? I'm planning another trip abroad, Anne. A rather long trip. I uh, dislike leaving loose ends behind me. You'll return them to me? Let's put it in another way. I'll leave on my trip after I give you the letters. I, I don't understand. Oh, dear Anne. I did hope you'd grown wiser. You want something for those letters. What is it? You're so businesslike, Anne, dear. Almost as much so as that man who came here this afternoon. A very convincing chap who deplores the coming appointment of your husband to the Senate. It's all so strange, Anne. He seemed to know about the letters, too. But, Roger, you wouldn't do that, would you? It's not like you. You think too much of me. (laughs) Haven't changed a bit, have you? Oh, please, Roger, it's not for myself, believe me. It's Philip. I love him. If anything happened to him, to his career, I... What would you do? I'm interested. I don't think I could go on living. You do love him, don't you? He's the only thing in the world, Roger. I... I almost believe you. Even though I seem to remember you telling me that once. I can't say any more. I've tried to explain to you so many times. You'd never understand. All right, Anne. You'll get your letters. Thank you, Roger. They'll cost you $10,000. In cash. To arrive here by messenger not later than 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. But where can I I get... managed to check your personal account. It comes to approximately $11,200.58. You should be grateful I'm generous enough to allow you the balance. But how can I explain away all that money to Phil? Don't you see, Perhaps I... you'd better explain everything to him. Now, I'm sure he'll understand that the organization opposing him will pay ten times that price. But he mustn't know, Roger. He mustn't know. All right, Roger, I'll get the money for you. Some way. Yes, Anne. You know there's only one thing to do now. 
Roger must get his money. The letters must be returned and destroyed. And you must worry about explaining to Phil later. There's too much at stake, Anne. Phil's career, your marriage, everything depends on the return of those letters. At 11 the next morning, you finish typing a note. Roger, I shall be waiting for the messenger who carries this package to you to return with the papers from your collection. You inserted in the package of bills you drew from the bank an hour ago. Give it to the messenger waiting at the door. There's nothing to do now but wait. But there's no answer. The messenger doesn't return. At six in the evening, the doorbell rings and you rush to the door to find Phil home early for dinner. By nine o'clock, you're sure Roger is double-crossing you. That's the one thing he wants more than money. To wreck your marriage. But it's too late in the evening to do anything. You make an excuse to Phil and go to bed. By morning, you've made a decision. After Phil has left for work, you slip his small automatic into your handbag, leave the house and hail a taxi. It's nine o'clock when the cab turns a corner into Roger's street and moves toward his apartment. That's the apartment right up there, lady. Riverside Arms. Yes, I know, driver. Please hurry. You've got to take it easy. Look at that crowd up there. Clear out into the street. Why, it's in front of the apartment. What's wrong? You got me, lady. Looks like an accident or something. Hey, you, taxi! Move along! You're blocking the street! Got a fare here, officer! Better pull down there around the corner there. What's the matter, officer? That man's been murdered, ma'am. Murdered? Yeah, move along now. Oh, wait a minute, please, wait. Who's been murdered, officer? A guy who lived in that apartment. Fellow named uh, Roger Henderson. It's almost too much to take, Anne. The strain of yesterday, a sleepless night. Now the single terrible fact that Roger Henderson is dead. That now the letters will come to light. There's a strange dizziness in your head. A half-sick feeling in your stomach. Things begin to fade. The whole world gets dark around the edges. Well, lady, where to now? Hey, where do you want to go to now, lady? If you like, we could go around by way of Park Street or even... Hey, what's the matter, lady? Something wrong? You look kind of pale, like you're going to pass out. Hey, wait! Take it easy now. Not a sniff of this ammonia. <coughs> I know it's nasty stuff, but that does the trick. Breathe deep now. <laughs> ah, lean back and relax for a minute. You're all right. What happened? It's all right, Mrs. Martin. You just pulled a faint in that taxi cab. Where, where, where am I? In my apartment. My name's Joe Burton. How did you know my name? It's my business to know people's names. I'm a private detective. Go on. You weren't the only one this Henderson guy was blackmailing, Mrs. Martin. I've been working on him for 14 months. I got a nervous client. It seems Mr. Henderson had some of her stationery, too, all... Flooded up with the wrong remarks. That's how I happened to be outside the apartment when I heard he'd been knocked off. Saw you pull up in a taxi, pull that faint, and presto, here you are. Why did you take me here? What do you want? 
Suspicious creature, aren't you? I have reason to be. You better let down the bars. You can use a guy like me. What do you mean? I think I can get your letters for you. Where are they? <laughs> it's a funny thing, isn't it? I can get you off the spot, and I think you can do the same for me. You were in Switzerland in 1937 with Henderson, weren't you? Well, what's that got to do with it? He was blackmailing my client at the same time. Someone was collecting for, uh, for him over here. But he never told me anything about... Think back, Mrs. Martin. It's important. Believe me, this dame is as desperate as you are. Still don't trust me, huh? All right. Take a look at this. Now, let's see. I shall be waiting for the messenger who carries this package to you. To... The money. $10,000 worth. Is that all it was? Where did you get it? In the valise, Henderson checked last night down at the railroad station. A pal of mine runs the check room. Go ahead, take it. Take it? It's yours, isn't it? Yes, it's mine. Do you trust me now? Uh, yes, yes, I guess I do. Good. Now, I suppose you let your hair down. Well, you said you knew where the letters were. I think so. Let's try to find them. If we fail, I'll, I'll tell you everything. I'll do anything to help you. You've simply got to understand, Mr. Burton, I must have those letters. All right. There was a small walnut nightstand in Henderson's bedroom, brass lock on the front. The cleaning woman says she's seen him put papers in there. I think they're the right ones. We'll check with her again in the morning. Why not now? The place is crawling with police. Oh, yes, of course it is. What time? Ten be all right? All right. Ten o'clock. Yes, Anne, you've got to trust him. There's no one else to turn to now. You arrive home to find the phone ringing. It's Phil saying he'll be working late. But it's not until after 11 when he quietly walks into the bedroom that you realize what he's working on. Wake, darling? Yes, Phil. Oh, I'm sorry I'm so late. That Henderson murder's thrown the organization into an uproar. Henderson? Yeah, thought you might have seen it in the papers. The governor wants me to handle the case personally. Says it'll make great publicity just before the appointment. But Phil, an ordinary murder case. Would you oh, never that's to... just it. There's more to this one than meets the eye. This guy Henderson was a professional blackmailer mixed up with the wife of some political bigwig. We've got a report on him a mile long. No names yet. The guy is too careful. But, Phil, darling, I don't want you involved in this sort of thing. It might be dangerous. Don't you see? Oh, forget Phil, it, Angel. Uh... This is going to be my last one. I want to make this one big. You started to tell him, Anne. Caught yourself just when you felt you couldn't hold it back any longer. Somehow you know you've got to stand it for another day, long enough to give Burton his chance. The next morning, the two of you arrive at the apartment building, wait for an opportunity to slip around through the corridor to the door with a brass nameplate on it, Mrs. Mooner, manager. A tight-lipped individual, Mrs. Mooner, until Burton slips her a $10 bill. Then it seems she can't yes, say I, enough. Mr. Burton, I do the cleaning up there occasionally, and I'd remember a nightstand if there was one. I know it was there, Mrs. Mooner. Black walnut with red plastic knobs. Wait a minute. It was on the side of the bed toward the door. Oh, but that wasn't a nightstand. That was a little cabinet. He kept it locked all the time. The leg was loose. 
Mr. Henderson always told me to be careful of it. And, and what? Uh, well, a repairman came around to the door just yesterday. I, I remembered the cabinet. You gave it to him? Yes. He took it to his shop. I've got the address right here. A liquor cabinet? Who picked it up? I don't know who picked it up. It was black walnut, red plastic knob. Brass lock on the front. You sure the man left this address? Let's not go through that again. I told Wait. you. Sure. Sure, that's what it is. Red done it again. The guy had red hair, didn't he? I don't know what color hair he had. I fired him last week. He's been going around town picking up furniture and selling it. Where can I find him? Just a minute, I'll write it down. Look, a red-haired fella came in here yesterday and sold you a liquor cabinet. I just talked to him. We see it around the floor anywhere? Oh, look, what about that one? Where? Right over there, next to the sofa. See? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Come on. I'm awfully sorry that one's not for sale. Why not? Well, it's locked, and we've got to get a key man here to open it. and need some repairs. I'll worry about that. Give me that paper knife, Mrs. Munn. Oh, here you are. Now. Wait a second. You can't do that. I'm paying for it, pal. Now. Empty. Yeah. I guess he was one jump ahead of us. Well, how much for it, pal? Uh, $20. Okay, here you are. Thank you. Well, aren't you going to take it along? I'll send for it later. Well? What do we do now? I guess we go back to my apartment. Talk for a while. Start all over again. Yes, Anne. There's nothing to do now but start from the beginning again. But you know in your heart it's almost hopeless that somewhere someone has those letters and plans to use them against you. But you've made up your mind to try, to keep trying until you're sure there's no hope. An hour later, the two of you are sitting over a table in his apartment. He lights your cigarette, leans back, waiting. Now, you understand, Mrs. Martin, why you have to tell me all you know about Henderson? Yes. How's your morale? Not too high, I'm afraid. Suppose you start from the first, huh? It won't take us long. Who's that? I don't know. Not in a hurry. Get into the closet over there. Oh, my goodness. Hello, Burton. Well, Mr. Martin... Hello, D.A. Mind if I come in? I'm a little busy. It's important. What's on your mind? A lot of routine stuff. A murder, mostly. A fellow named Roger Henderson. Know anything about it? No, I... I think you do. I think you killed him night before last at 11 o'clock. Funny, I'd swear I was with a guy named Joe Rocker at the time. So did he. Until we broke him down. He spilled it. Right from the beginning. Put up your hands, Burton. Ah. A thirty-eight. The boys in the laboratory will be interested in this. You back on the homicide detail, D.A.? Not on this one, I am. I was interested the minute I found out you are hired by the mob that's after my neck. They offered you a hundred grand, didn't they, Burton? You seem to know everything. Why don't you answer that one? We can do an awful lot of close guessing. 
Henderson was in the middle somewhere, wasn't he? Some woman he was putting the bite on, a package of letters you were after on the night you killed him. You made a mistake, though, Burton. The woman had nothing to do with me. I never saw in my life. You can tell her to come out of that closet now. What makes you think... Cigarette with lipstick in the ashtray there, still burning. And another thing, unless I'm mistaken, the table here... Ah, dictaphone. Recording machine in the next room, eh? (laughs) You still say she isn't here? Why don't you take a look? All right. I will. like an automaton for the next hour, Anne. Too confused and frightened to think clearly. Following Phil's instructions to leave the building by the side entrance, take a taxi home and meet him there. It's only after you arrive home and relax quietly for a while in a chair by the fireplace that your mind stops spinning. You close your eyes and try to forget everything. Phil is bending over you as you open them again. Phil. Anne, Anne, how are you? I don't know, Phil. It's been terrible. I've done an awful thing. Relax, darling. Don't try to talk. What can I say, Phil? Don't say anything. Aren't you going to ask me any questions? No. No questions. Did you find me in a murderer's apartment? And the blackmail, everything. No questions, huh? When you, when you love someone like, like I love you, Anne, you don't ask questions. I've got to tell you everything, right from the beginning. That's it, eh? Yes, that's it. I was only trying to protect you, darling. I know it's hopeless now. It's far from hopeless, Angel. We're stronger now than we ever were before. They'll never open their traps with a number one boy up on a murder charge. And that doesn't matter now, Anne. Nothing matters except you and me. Not even your career. Not even my career. Oh, I almost forgot. There was a note for you waiting in the mailbox when I got home tonight. Oh, that's strange. Look, to be delivered January 6th. Dear Anne, by the time you receive this, I will be well on my way out of the country. I promised you I'd return the letters to you. I'm sorry to say I can't return them. You see, there aren't any letters. I destroyed every one of them nine years ago when I first received them. <laughs> Have fun with your charming husband, Anne. It's such a short lifetime, isn't it? Hi. Roger Henderson. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let that whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Monday at 9. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. Featured in tonight's story were Loreen Tuttle and William Johnstone. The Whistler was produced by George W. Allen with tonight's story by Stuart Nobins, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is Marvin Miller speaking for the Signal Oil Company. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Baby boomers, of course, remember Marvin Miller as the guy that used to hand out the million-dollar checks on that television show, The Millionaire, that came on in CBS in the mid to late 50s. John Bairdsford Tipton would anonymously give a million dollars to different uh, people that he, I, I guess, either thought that they were worthy or he was making a study of people. The show would always start with him having a meeting with the Marvin Miller character and uh, giving him some little vignette about life. And then he would hand him a check and he'd say, our next millionaire. What was the name of the character that Marvin Miller played? Do you remember Chester? No, I know the other one was Tipton, but no, I, I, I can't remember it either. Michael Anthony. That's right. Thank you, Chester. My name is Michael Anthony, and on behalf of an anonymous donor, we are giving you this check for $1 million. <laughs> oh, a million dollars went a lot further back then, a lot further in the 1950s. All right, well, that one was for Jeannie in Mountain Home, Arkansas, who loves the Whistler, and I do too, Jeannie. So we'll have more episodes in the weeks ahead. <laughs> Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, tonight. I receive a lot of requests for the Jack Benny show and a lot of comments on various episodes. I thought this one was uh, particularly good because it comes from the United Kingdom. It says, Dear Bob, I know you sometimes say you play too much of the Jack Benny show, but don't you believe it? The Benny show was by far the funniest and best written comedy show in all of old time radio. At least that is my humble opinion. More. Play more. Signed Sheila Mason in Manchester, England. Well, you know how I feel about Jack Benny. I just can't get enough of it. So what we're going to do tonight on the Comedy Corner is go back to the 13th of December, 1947, where we find Jack is recovering from a sprained ankle. Here it comes. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. 
gentlemen, as you all know, last week, Jack Benny sprained his ankle while playing football with some of the neighborhood kids. He's been confined to his bed all week, and his friends are quite concerned about it. Let's drop in on two of them. Hey, Emily. What is it, Martha? Did you hear about Jack Benny spraining his ankle? Yes, I read about it in the paper. Oh, the poor man. I hope it doesn't interfere with his dancing. <laughs> Turkey trots divinely. <laughs> Why, Martha, did you ever dance with Mr. Benny? No, but I saw him one night last month when I was cigarette girl at the Palladium. <laughs> He called me over and bought a package of Lucky Strikes from me. Really? And while I was giving him his change, his hand touched mine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Then what happened? Oh, I don't know. When I came to, I was in the ladies' powder room. <laughs> oh, Martha, you're just making a fool of yourself over Jack Benny. I am not. You are, too. You even went to see the horn blows at midnight. Well, that was the only place I could be alone with him. <laughs> Emily, have you ever noticed his eyes in a technicolor picture? His eyes? Yes. They look like the reflection of the evening sky in two limpid woodland pools. <laughs> Martha, stop talking about him like that. You'll blow the fuse on your hearing aid. But I don't care. You know, I sent him flowers this morning. Gee, I wonder if he received them. How about another pillow, boss? No, I've got enough pillows. But, gee, I wish the bed was a little softer. Shall I empty the mattress? No. You better do that tomorrow morning. The banks are closed today. Yes, sir. Uh, where would you like me to put these flowers? Over there on the table. You know, I can't figure out who sent them. Let me see that card again, Rochester. Here you are. To Jack Benny from someone who admires you tremendously. I wonder who... Well, you know, boss, Lana Turner ain't going with Tyrone Power anymore. <laughs> Say, maybe... No, no, he wouldn't send them to me. <laughs> Rochester, hand me that mirror. I want to see if I need a shave. Here you are. Let's see. No, oh, I guess I can get by without shaving. Gee. Mr. Benny, why do you keep staring in the mirror? Rochester, do my eyes look like the reflection of the evening sky in two limpid woodland pools? Uh-huh. It's a shame you have to close them at night. <laughs> Yeah, me in the morning, glories. By the way, boss, do you want me to fill out that form for your accident insurance? I don't know. Do you think they'd pay off on a sprained ankle? Why not? You collected for that ingrown toenail. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, Rochester, take the pen and start filling out the insurance form. Yes, sir. You can answer most of the questions yourself. Okay. Full name, Jack Benny. Address, 360 North Camden Drive. Occupation, radio comedian. Age 38. That's my boy who said that. Wait a 
165 pounds. Height, 5 feet 10. Color of eyes, reflection of the evening sky. Just, <laughs> Just put down blue. This is a business transaction. Yes, sir. Uh, you better answer this next question, boss. Describe how accident occurred. Hmm, write this down. During the excitement of a football game, I was viciously tackled, thrown to the ground, and knocked unconscious. Name the description of person causing injury to you. Stephen Kent, nine years old. <laughs> Say, boss, ain't that going to be sort of embarrassing? Yes, you, you better make it 12 years old. <laughs> Nature of injury, severe sprain to the left ankle, and Rochester, see who's at the door. We'll finish this later. Yes, sir. Let's see. To Jack Benny from someone who admires you tremendously. Might be Hetty Lamar, or Ann Sheridan, or Paulette, or Betty Grable, or... Gee, I better take off some of these blankets. It's getting kind of warm. <laughs> it might even... Oh, hello, Don. Well, hello, Jack. Rochester told me to come right in. I came over just as soon as I heard about your accident. Well, that was nice of you, Don. And, Jack, I brought you this basket of fruit. Thought you might enjoy it. Gee, what a lovely-looking basket. Fruit, nuts, and everything. Look at those fruit there. Set it right over there on the table. Okay. Mind if I have an apple? No, 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 not at all. How'd the accident happen, Jack? Oh, it's really silly. I was playing football with some kids and I tripped and fell. You know, Jack, I was quite a football player during my college days. You were, Doug? Yes, sir. Did you ever hear of the famous seven blocks of granite? Yes. Well, I was known as the seven barrels of blubber. <laughs> I'll just ad-lib that to cheer you up a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks. You're welcome. Mind if I have a banana? No, no, no. Go right ahead. Well, seriously, Jack, I was pretty terrific as a football player. What'd you say, Don? I'll never forget my last college game back in 1927. With only one minute to go, I scored a touchdown on the hidden ball play by slipping the ball under my jersey. Well, Don, that was 20 years ago. You can take it out now. <laughs> By the way, Don, uh, how are things at the studio? How did the rehearsal go? Oh, everything went fine, Jack. Good, good. Would it be all right if I have an orange? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Go right ahead. Rochester, answer the phone, please. Yes, sir. Hello? Hello, Rochester. This is Professor LeBlanc, Michel Benny's violin teacher. Oh, yes. I just heard the good news. No, no, Professor. It's his ankle, not his arm. Sacre bleu. <laughs> who, uh, who was that on the phone, Rochester? Professor LeBlanc. Oh. Say, Jack, was that your violin teacher? Yes. Mind if I have another banana? No, no, no. Go right ahead. You know, Jack, I was just thinking... Don, be Don, wouldn't they taste better if you peeled them first? <laughs> Huh? I don't know. I've never tried them that way. Well, you should. You know, they're... Oh, hello, Dennis. I was hoping you'd come over. I wanted to ask oh, you... Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Hello. Say, Dennis, I was hoping you'd come over. I wanted to ask you How about... How do you feel? Pretty good. Dennis, I was hoping you'd come over. I wanted to ask How's you... How's your ankle? Not bad. Not bad. Dennis, I was Hello, ho... Don. Well, hello, Dennis. <laughs> See, these grapes are good. Grapes? Don, when did you start the grapes? After I finished the tangerines. <laughs> tangerines? How can a man... Hey, Don, so... come to the window. I want to show you something. Look. Look what I bought this morning. See it there against the curb? 
Well, a bicycle built for two. Say, who's that sitting on the front seat? My chauffeur. Your chauffeur? I got two shows, you know. I know, I know. Say, Dennis, look at this. I brought it over to cheer up Mr. Benny. Gee, what a beautiful basket. Yeah, you should have seen it when there was fruit in there. <laughs> Say, Mr. Benny, I brought you something, too. Here. Oh, thanks, kid. Thanks. But, uh, uh what is it? It's just a plain stick. Oh, it was a popsicle, but it melted on the way over. <laughs> oh. And I had a gift wrapped, too. Well, anyway, Dennis, you meant well. Oh, by the way, Don, I'd like you to drop by my house if you can. We have our Christmas tree up already, and I want you to see it. Oh, sure, I'd love to, Dennis. How do I get to your house? Well, drive over to Wilshire Boulevard and follow the pink line down the middle of the street. The pink line? That popsicle was raspberry. (laughs) Say, Mr. Benny, I've been rehearsing the song I'm going to sing on the program. Would you like to hear it? Oh, what's the name of it? So far. Oh, sure, Dennis, sure, go ahead. Jack, do you mind if I have one of these walnuts? No, no, Don, go ahead. I'm glad you didn't bring me candy. I'm on a diet. Go ahead and sing, kid, will you? Okay. Wonderful song, and it sounded great. Thanks, Mr. Benny. Don, not so loud with those walnuts, you know? It makes me nervous. Oh, I'm sorry, Jack. Anyway, you're liable to... 
Who's there? Somebody at the door? I'll get it! Say, Mr. Benny, how long do you think you'll have to stay in bed with your sprained ankle? I don't know, but I've got to be up Thursday because I'm going to be a guest on the Dick Haynes show. Dick Haynes? Who's he? <laughs> Who's he? Dick Haynes is a great singer. That's who he is. How many shows has he got? <laughs> One. Ha! What are you ha ha about? Everybody doesn't have Mr. to have... Mr. Benny! It. Right here, sonny. Hello, Mr. Benny. Oh, hello, Stevie. It's nice of you to drop in. Gee, I'm sure sorry I tackled you so hard that you hurt your ankle. Well, don't worry about it, Stevie. It's all in the game. Say, Stevie, this is Don Wilson and Dennis Day. Hi. Hello, Stevie. Hello. Mr. Benny, yeah. the boys in our club were sorry you got hurt, so we chipped in and bought you this. Oh, gee, my favorite magazine, True Confession. <laughs> Thanks, Stevie. Say, uh, Stevie, I understand that you and the kids in the neighborhood have a pretty good football team. Yeah, we have uniforms and everything. How many footballs have you got? One. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, be quiet. You know, Jack, I think it's wonderful the way the kids in the neighborhood all get together and play football and everything. Not only that, Don, these kids have even formed a club. They pay dues, you know. They've already saved up $8.65. How do you know? Mr. Benny's the treasurer. <laughs> yes, they wanted me to run for president, but I don't... See more visitors today. Rochester, see who's at the door, will you please? Yes, sir. Hello, Rochester. How's Mr. Benny? Oh, he's getting along fine, Miss Livingston. You know, he's in a pretty good shape for a man of 38. 38? Rochester, Mr. Benny is 53. Well, then how come when he made out his income tax, he put down his age as 38? The government lets him withhold 20%. <laughs> Rochester, who is it? It's me, Jack. Well, Mary. Mary, it's sure good to see you. Hello, Jack. How are you, Don? Hello, Mary. Hello, Dennis. Ha! <laughs> He's better than you are because you've only got one head. <laughs> what? Oh, nothing, nothing. How's your ankle? Well, I can't walk on it yet. Say, Mary, did you bring me a present or anything? Yes, Jack. I left it in the living room. Should I bring it in? What is it? A rubber duck. You broke yours last week. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it was nice of you to think of me. By the way, how are things in Palm Springs? Oh, I had a wonderful time, Jack. And just before I left, I got this letter from Mama. Oh, a letter from your mother, eh? Well, what does the Martha Graham of Plainfield have to say? <laughs> I'll read it to you. <coughs> Don, don't throw the shells in my bed. <laughs> Go ahead, Mary, read the letter. Okay. My darling daughter, Mary, I hate to start this letter with bad news. I thought your father was on the wagon. But last week, he lost his job as Santa Claus in the local department store. It seems he breathed on a couple of kids and their hair turned gray. I knew he could do it. <laughs> However, I am happy to say that your sister, babe, is engaged again. 
This yes. time to a very nice man. He's working at the Acme Iron Company as a steam fitter. A steam fitter, huh? Babe had to quit working if the foreman won't allow man and wife on the same job. Yeah, that's a shame after she bought that new set of wrenches. <laughs> when Babe left the Acme Iron Company, they gave her a bonus, and she's using the money to have her teeth straightened. Well, babe's teeth do protrude a little, you know. Remember... <laughs> Remember the last time she almost got married? When the minister said, do you take this man to be your lawful wedded husband, Babe smiled, said, I do, and ripped her veil to shreds. <laughs> oh, yes, I felt so sorry for her with those big holes in her veil the flies got in. <laughs> they invited me to go with them to Niagara Falls on their honeymoon, but it was too expensive for three people, so Babe and I are going alone. <laughs> Mary, it's none of my business, but why doesn't your mother stay home? She has an answer to that. Oh. The reason I'm so anxious to go back to Niagara Falls is because it will bring back those wonderful memories of 1912. Just think, no other woman has gone over in a barrel since then. <laughs> Not only that, your mother did it while the beer was still in it. <laughs> no other news, so we'll close now. Your loving mother, Jersey Joe Livingston. Jersey Joe Livingston. Your mother sure reaches for those gags. Oh, wait a minute. Here's a P.S. Oh, fine. Uh, your sister babe just came in crying her eyes out and said the wedding is off. What? Her boyfriend came over and handed her a note that said, We disaffiliate. No. It must be the real thing because it was written in coal dust. Gee, that's a shame. One thing about your mother's letters, they're always so interesting. Don, please. Say, Dennis, Dennis, hand me that ashtray, will you? Okay, but Don put some walnut shells in it. Well, empty it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Wait a minute, Jack. What are you doing with the ashtray? Well, I'm putting out my cigarette. I'm, I'm finished with it. But, Jack, it's a lucky strike, and there's almost half of it left. Well, I'll light another one later. Say, Mary, do you think that... Don, Don, what are you staring at? I was just thinking of that lucky strike lying there in the ashtray. What? You know, Jack, if that unfinished cigarette could think, if it could only talk, I know just what it would say. Oh, Don, please. Quiet, Jack, quiet. I can hear it now. What? All of me. Why not smoke all of me? I'm lonesome without you. Pick me up. Don't let me lay there. Another puff. Don't let me stay there. Can't you see what your lips mean to me? Grab me quick while I am still burning. You Jack, 
Wasn't that beautiful? Beautiful? I didn't hear anything. And, Don, why are there tears in your eyes? I caught my finger in the nutcracker. <laughs> good, good. Gee, I sure wish I could get out of this bed. I'm so uncomfortable. Well, Jack, you've been lying in the same spot all week. Why don't you turn around and put your head at the foot of the bed for a change? That's a good idea. Help me turn around, will you? I'll help you, Jack. Thanks, Don. Ooh. Ooh. Be careful of my foot. Be careful of my sprained ankle. There. There, I'm all right now. Thanks. You're right, Mary. It is more comfortable with my head at this end of the bed. The doctor's here, Mr. Benny. The doctor sent him right in. How do you do? <laughs> yeah, I'm Dr. Nelson. Somebody called me. I did. It's about Mr. Benny's sprained ankle. Oh, well, I'll examine that at once. Say, this does look bad. Look how swollen it is. My, what an ugly-looking mess. <laughs> doctor, you're looking at my head. My feet are at the other end. Yes, that's your nose. I thought you had a high instep. Well, how, how does my ankle look, Doctor? I don't know yet. Pull up your nighties. <laughs> okay. I'll leave the room. You don't have to, Mary. I'm wearing pajamas underneath her. Now, Doctor, uh, examine my ankle. Uh, just a moment while I remove your sock. There. And this little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. This little Doctor, piggy had... cut that off. <laughs> Just examine my ankle. Uh, yes, sir. Hiya, Jackson. Hello, fellas. Hey, what do you say, Libby? Hello, Phil. Hey, how do you feel, Jackson? How's the invalid? I'm all right. Oh, Jack, look what Phil brought you. What? Why, Phil, you sentimental son of a gun. Thanks for the flowers. These ain't for you. I thought you had a nurse. I'll be darned. Here I am laid up in bed, and he brings flowers for the nurse. Well, ain't you got one? No, if I did have a nurse, how would you know what she looked like? Look, Jackson, what have I got to lose? If the dame's pretty, I give her the flowers. If she's really homely, Don can eat them. <laughs> well, you've certainly got that figured out. Hey, well, since you ain't got no nurse, Jackson, I think I'll give the flowers to Livy. Hey, here you are, Livy. Well, thank you. Wait a minute, Mary. I want this room to look nice. Put the flowers in the vase. Jack, Phil gave them to me, and I'm going to take them home. You are not. I'm the one who's laid up, so give me those flowers. Okay, okay, here. After all, it's my house, you know, and I... Ouch! Doctor, what did you do to my foot? I bit you, you mean old man! This is none of your business. <laughs> come on, come on, everybody. Let's get the party started. Phil, put down that bottle. That's the rub on my back. <laughs> huh? Can't you see what it says on the label? For external use only. You're supposed to rub it in your skin. Rub it in my skin? Yes. That sounds like a slow way, but with New Year's Eve three weeks off, maybe I can make it. <laughs> You rub hard, yeah. Hey, look, Jackson, I gotta run along. I gotta go down to the pool room, rehearse my own show. Phil, you rehearse your show in the pool room? Sure, that way I can always pick up my cue. <laughs> Phil. Oh, Harris, you may not be the prettiest kid that I ever saw, but Phil, on second thought, don't rub it in. Drink it. <laughs> hey, thanks. So long, Jackson. So long. And hey, now, Mr. Benny. 
I've got your ankle all taped up, and I'd suggest that you get some rest. Some rest? Okay, doctor. Goodbye, Mr. Benny. I'll see you later. Ha! <laughs> so long, Dennis. I'll run along too, Jack. Okay. I'm sorry I got so mad about the flowers. Ah, oh, that's all right. Then give me a kiss to show me you're not mad. Okay. Pucker up your lip. Mm-hmm. A little more. Mm-hmm. A little more. Mm-hmm. Now, here's your rubber duck. Blow it up. <laughs> being such a mean old man. Gee, my toe hurts. Well, I'll run along too, Mr. Benny, and remember what I said. Get some sleep. I will, I will. Would you like me to leave you a sleeping pill? No, no, I'll just tune into Fred Allen. <laughs> it's quicker that way. <laughs> Goodbye, Doctor. Hey, goodbye. Oh, Rochester! Rochester! Yes, sir? Look, I'm going to try to get a little sleep. I wish you'd read that book to me. That might help. You know, the one you, the one you started yesterday. Oh, yes, let me see. Where is it? Here it is, right here. Let's see, where were we? Oh, yes. In this town, there lived a farmer who was disliked by all of his neighbors because he was so greedy. And one day he walked out to the barn and found that his goose had laid a golden egg. Gee. The next day, the farmer went out to the barn and found that his goose had laid another golden egg. Gosh. And then the third day, another golden egg. Oh, boy. On the fourth day, the goose... Rochester, a... read something else. I'll never go to sleep. That's too exciting. <laughs> find, find another story, will you? Okay, here's one. Once upon a time in a great big forest, there lived three bears. A mama bear, a papa bear, and a little baby bear. These three bears had a house in the woods. And in their house, there was three bears. A mama bear, a papa bear, and a little, little baby Someone's been eating my porridge and ate it all up. Rochester, don't read anymore. I'll try to get... Don, are you still here? Why didn't you go home? I can't. I'm sick as a dog. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Kind of an abrupt ending there. I guess they ran out of time. When those shows were done live, that happened quite often. There's other times we've had the Benny show where they, they go out with a the musical number, you know, their theme song, and it'll go on for two, three minutes because they have to fill up time. It really must have been difficult to keep a live show on time, knowing the precise timing that is required by the networks. Anyway, that was the Jack Benny Show, and that one was first broadcast in 1947 on December the 13th on NBC, before he made the move to CBS. And that was requested by a friend of ours and a listener in Manchester, England, by the name of uh, Sheila Mason. And Sheila, if if you're listening, uh, I'd be curious to know how much the good folks in your country knew about Jack Benny. Now, I I assume you're a baby boomer. Maybe you're not. But if you remember Benny, I, I know you must have seen some of his movies. But was his radio show ever popular in England? I kind of doubt it. So uh, I'd be I'd be curious to know about that, or anybody else. Drop me a line if you happen to know. Uh, what kind of exposure Jack Benny had in England. I know he went over there and played Royal Albert Hall, I think. I know George Burns did. I, I'm pretty sure Jack Benny did too. So I'd be curious to know. 
The Jack Benny Show will have more episodes in the weeks ahead. Finally, we come to Gunsmoke. And of course, I've received a lot of requests for different Gunsmoke episodes over the years. But here's one I just recently received and I thought it was kind of special. It comes to us from the state of Hawaii. It says, Dear Bob, thanks for the great podcast. I look forward to receiving it every Sunday night. My favorite show is Gunsmoke, and I particularly like the episodes that feature strong women. Next time you play an episode like that, will you please dedicate it to my mother, Louise Wong, who we lost last year. She was the strongest woman I've ever known. Even though she went through a lot with my abusive father, she always protected us kids until she was finally able to remove him from our lives. Without support, she went to work to provide for us. She worked hard and she was always there when we needed counsel, help or discipline. She was a very loving and a great mom, and I miss her dearly. Thanks again for your entertaining show. Many of my family members as well as our friends listen to you every week here in Hawaii. Your friend, Danielle Wong Lee in Honolulu, Hawaii. Ah, thank you, Danielle. I'm sorry for your loss last year. Louise sounds like she was a great woman. So what I've got for you tonight, Danielle, is an episode of Gunsmoke entitled Till Death Do Us Part. And it was first broadcast on October 21st, 1956. It was written by Les Crutchfield. And he was good at writing stories with little surprises. And the one you're going to hear tonight is, I think, fits your criteria for the type of story you want dedicated to your mother. This episode also features all of our regular cast, and it also has Virginia Gregg, Ralph Moody, Don Diamond, and John Daner. And I am happy to dedicate this one to the memory of Louise Wong in Hawaii.
Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. It's a nice clear evening, Mr. Dillon. It'll be cold before morning, though. Maybe old Doc ain't too far wrong. Oh, what about? Well, he claims winter's coming early this year. He claims we'll have snow before the end of the month. He's just passing along Indian talk, Chester. They're all claiming the same thing. Evening, Marshal. Oh, how are you, Chester? Miss Cobb? How do you, Marshal? Chester. Evening, ma'am. Get up there. Do declare, Mr. Dillon, that that ain't the most dilapidated old buggy I ever seen anywhere. Ah, Jezra believes in getting full value out of things. Making do, as he calls it. Mm. Well, let's get something to eat, huh? Well, now, eating is something I get full value out of. Yeah, I know. Uh, let's sit over there by the window, huh? Mm. That team of Jezra's could do with some eating. The way their bones are sticking out. Uh, Jezra figures fat on a horse is a sign that grain's being wasted. We will you shortly, Marshal. Okay. He must figure the same thing about women. Ms. Cobb's bones was sticking out some, too. Yeah, he probably works her half to death. Has to to run a farm that size without any hired help. Well, they sure do keep to theirselves. Ah, people just don't take to Jezra much. He's got a pretty cool way about him. And it's hard to say what she's like. Mm, that poor lady don't even open her mouth lest he tells her she can. Plain mousy, that's what she well, is. What are you figuring to eat, gents? Well, what do you got? Uh, stewed beef and bile greens. Uh, well, uh, I guess that's what we'll eat, huh, Chester? All right, I'll bring it right out. Boiled greens. Boiled jimson weed more than that. What? See, that was up the end of the street, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, come on, Chester. Open up here. Let me through, will you, please? Will you let me through? Hang on to that horse. It's mighty spooky. What's the trouble, Jezra? Marshal, you've allowed this town to become a sink of iniquity, a whited sepulcher. How's oh, that so? Town of painted Jezebel, scoundrels, and murdering assassins. The name should be changed to Sodom or Gomorrah. You all right, Miss Cobb? Somebody tried to kill us, Marshal. They were standing right over there in the shadows. Minerva, you'll kind of remember a woman's place. Marshal asked me. Silence. Sorry, Jezra. Did you get a look at him? We did not. A coward struck in the darkness. It was only a miracle we escaped. Uh, any of the rest of you see who fired those shots? Oh, I 
Hey, you're the law here, Marshal. I demand an accountant of this outrageous assault. Jezra, do you know anybody who might think they got a reason to kill you? I never had an enemy in my life. Well, it looks like you got one now. Sugar, yeah, that should fool Mrs. Prudley. <laughs> well, hand me that pill mold, will you, Matt? <clears throat> uh, is this what you mean, Doc? That's it. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, I've got to make this prescription look real authentic. Oh, what do you mean? Uh, these are fooling pills. I've got nothing in them but sugar and some chalk and a little gum arabi to bind them. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the kind of medicine folks get from you. Oh, no, it's the kind old Mrs. Crudlin gets. As long as she figures they help her, it's all that's necessary. At least they don't do her any harm. <laughs> Nothing wrong with her anyhow, except in her mind. <laughs> oh, there we are. We'll let that sit a while and dry, and then... Oh, say, so you found out yet who fired those shots at old Jezra Cobb? No, Doc, not a hint. That's a funny thing, Matt. I don't think I know a soul in Dodge that likes old Jez. Yeah, I know, Doc. But nobody really hates him, either. They just stay clear of him as far as they can. Yeah, that's just it. He just isn't the kind of a man to rouse up strong feelings in anybody. Good or bad. Well, he must arouse some and whoever tried to kill him or kill her. I don't even know for sure which one they were after, him or his wife. Uh, you busy, Doc? Huh? Oh. Well, come right in, Kitty. Hello, Kitty. Matt, what are you doing here? Well, he's hiding from Jezra Cobb. What? <laughs> don't mind, Doc. Um, I'll step outside, Kitty. If oh, no, no, don't go, Matt. I just wanted to get something for a headache, Doc. Oh, it's too bad. Well, dip yourself some water there. <laughs> here are some pills I just made up, Kitty. Oh, not, Doc. Not... <laughs> Formula came straight from Boston. Well, they can take care of this headache. They're miracle pills. That's exactly what they are. Here you are. You swallow a couple of those. Oh, thanks, Doc. I personally guarantee those to stop the world's worst headache in one minute flat. Uh, yeah, they, uh, they've done wonders for uh, Ms. Prudlin. Mrs. Prudlin? Uh, pay no attention to him, Kitty. He, he's all upset over that shooting. Well, I could name a few people who aren't upset over it. Oh, which people? Some of the girls at the Long Branch. He drops in about three times a year. Jezra Cobb at the Long Branch? Old, self-righteous Jezra. And every time it means trouble, he always drinks too much and he bothers everybody. Bothers him, huh? By trying to reform him. And it's the girls who always get the worst of it. He... Now, who'd have thought it? He calls them painted Jezebels. Says he means to cure them of their transgressions. Of course, the only cure he seems to know is to... Grab a cane and beat the daylights out of any of them he can get his hands on. I didn't know Jezra was that bad. You ask some of the girls, Matt. Daisy or Billy Bell. Yeah, I will, Kitty. Uh, Doc, could I have some of those pills to take with me? Uh, look, uh, Kitty, Doc was just playing. They're real good, Doc. My headache's all gone. What'd you start to say, Matt? Uh, nothing, Kitty. <laughs> nothing. Forty-eight hours, Marshal, and you've accomplished nothing. 
I demand legal action. You haven't helped things any by lying to me, Jezra. Lying to you? You told me you never had an enemy in your life, but two or three young ladies over at the Long Branch disagree with you. <laughs> Dance hall girls. Maybe so, but I'd sure hate to have them looking at me over a set of gun sights. Abandoned, painting their faces, cavorting in public to the devil's music. And stay away if you don't like it before you get a bullet in your back. Wasn't a woman who fired them shots? A woman wouldn't have to fire them, Jezrin. She could get a man to do it for her. Then why don't you jail them girls if they're plotting to kill me? I don't have any proof of anybody plotting anything. You're in league with the adversary, Marshal. You're aiding and abetting the forces of evil. Let me tell you something, Jezra. I'll aid and abet anybody's right to live his own life according to his own lights. As long as he's within the law. Mr. Dillon, I... Yeah, what is it? Uh, could I see you a minute? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, what's the matter, Chester? Well, it's Miss Kitty. She wants you over at the Long Branch right away. Oh, what for? Well, it seems there's a fellow there that's been drinking real heavy, Mr. Dillon, uh, talking too much. Oh? A and Miss Kitty heard him say he'd been offered $300 to kill old Jezra. <laughs> Right, Kitty. Come on, Chester. Yes, sir. He's playing poker over here with a house dealer and a couple of cowboys. You been in here before? Yeah, just during the last week. He's a drifter, I guess. Goes by the name of Puggy Rado. There. That's him, Matt, on the far side of the table. Uh-huh. Yeah, he looks like a saddle bum. He was making out real braggy for a while. Fastest gun in Texas, that kind of talk. But I guess he knew he'd gone too far when he said that about Jezra Cobb. He shut up tight right after. All right, Kitty, I'll try to get him away from that table. Wait, Matt. I think he's coming over here. Yeah. Reckon you're the marshal, ain't you? That's right, yeah. I reckon she heard what I said, sent for you. That's just what I figured she was doing. Hold Matt. it, hold it, Marshal. You make one move toward that gun, and I'll put a bullet right in her back. You get your hands off me. Take it easy, Kitty. You tell her, Marshal. Tell her me and her is leaving now. And if anybody lays a hand on a gun, there's going to be a pretty corpse on the floor. I told you to let go! Take him out! Drop the gun, Rado! Not a chance! You all right, Kitty? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, Matt. Well, I had to kill him now. There was no time for anything else. Marshal, Marshal, uh, was, was that the man? Yeah, it looks that way, Jezra. He was claiming somebody had offered him $300 to kill you. Why, that, that's the fellow who... Who what, Jezra? Why, he stopped in at my place last week begging a handout. Uh, did, uh, did you say $300? No, that's right. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> well, I... I got to be getting on home, Marshal. Got stock to tend to. 
Got a lot of things to tend to. Well, forevermore, what come over him so sudden? I don't know, Chester. But I think I can guess. such a poor built house, ain't it? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, good evening, Miss Cobb. Uh, I do, Marshal. Chester. Miss Cobb. Did your husband get home yet, Miss Cobb? He's out there in the barn. Won't you come in and set a spell? Uh, yes, we will. Thank you. As a matter of fact, Miss Cobb, uh, you're the one we rode out here to see. Ah, that's right kind of you, Marshal. Now, you two set you down there at the table. Just this minute, took a wild plum pie out of the oven. Well, no, no, thank you, Miss Cobb. Well, I don't you... often get to feed callers. You ain't going to deprive me of the chance. To... Maybe we could just taste it a little dab, Mr. Dillon. All right, Chester. I uh, always had the impression that... Uh, you were opposed to visitors, Miss Cobb. Oh, I love to have folks come. Jezra ain't never been one to encourage it. Oh, I see. The righteous must turn their faces from the world. For the world is the cradle of sin. That's what Jezra always said. There you are, piping hot. My gracious, that smells good. Well, eat hearty. There's plenty more. It'll just go to waste. Jezra's never cared too much for plum pie. Miss Cobb, how long have uh, you and Jezra been married? Twenty-seven years, Marshal. Twenty-seven years. Uh-huh. And over those years, Miss Cobb, how many times did he beat you? Hundreds of times. For my transgressions, he told me. He used to read me from the good book that a husband's got a right to do that. I, I never learned to read myself. But last month I asked Reverend Blouse, and he said there weren't nothing like that in the good book. Well, uh, maybe Jezra's got his own version. He lied to me, that's what he done. And if he'd lie about that, then... Well, I reckon you know, don't you, Marshal? Yes, ma'am. About you offering money to that drifter who rode through here last week. That you hired him to kill Jezra. Yes, ma'am, I guessed it. Jezra did, too. Oh, I figured he did the way he acted in town. He come home and told me about you having to shoot the man. Then he asked me for our savings. And I got it for him. He sat down here and counted it. 
And when he seen it was the same as that fella had been talking about, $300. Then he knowed for sure. What did he say? Oh, nothing much. He just sat here a while, smiling at me kinda in that cold way of his. His glory smile, I always called it. And then he got up and went out to the barn. And of course I knowed what he was going for. What do you mean? He was aiming to fetch a hickory stave. He always keeps some out there to mend fences. I declare, Mr. Dillon, a, a man like that ought to be... Well... I think, ma'am, maybe I better go have a little talk with Jezra. Won't be no use, Marshal. Just won't be no use. I think it will, ma'am. Listen to me, Marshal. You're wasting your time. I'm trying to tell you. When he went to fetch that stave, I knowed what he was aiming to do. And I followed him out to the barn. Yes? I stood real close, Marshal, so I wouldn't miss. And I pulled the trigger four times. I put the gun there in the cupboard. I figured you'd be wanting it. Jezra ain't never gonna beat me no more. You sit right back down there and finish your pie. Now, William Conrad. You know, when a bad man riding a good horse came into Dodge looking for trouble, well, likely as not, he got a bullet hole placed in him. And the horse went to the man who did it. And that was the West. Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The script was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield with editorial supervision by John Meston. The music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Ray Kemper and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Ralph Moody, Don Diamond, and John Daner. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke.
was Gunsmoke, and that was originally broadcast on the 21st of October in 1956. The name of that story was Till Death Do Us Part. And we sent out a dedication on that episode to the memory of Louise Wong in Honolulu, Hawaii, as requested by her daughter Danielle. More Gunsmoke next time. All right, Chester is waving at me frantically, letting me know that we're all out of time. So I'm going to pick up all of these shows here and transport them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, we'll be back next week with the Archive Show and in two weeks with an all-new show. I hope you liked our selections tonight. You better. You asked for them. So uh, maybe we'll do this again real, real soon. And Chester, I think that was a great idea. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, everybody, this is Bob Bro. I am so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. <laughs>